From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. Last weekend, Vermont celebrated the 10-year anniversary of a historic vote. I stood on the floor last Friday and made a statement about this. I'd been gone for a week, and I had been gone because my partner Enrique was visiting with family in New Mexico and was unexpectedly, on an emergency basis, hospitalized. And so I left Vermont and spent a week with him as he was treated in the hospital and subsequently was able to recover, and I returned. Bill Lippert represents Heinsberg in the Vermont House. He's held the seat since 1993, and he was a key player in the fight for marriage equality in Vermont. I had occasion to reflect while I was in the hospital with him, and we commented on it together, what it meant for us to be there having a legal marriage relationship, having him be able to say, this is my spouse, Bill. This is the man to whom I am married. It requires a different level of acknowledgement. It requires a different level of respect that I was listening not as a friend in the room. How many times we have been the friend. I was his legal marriage partner. The path to the marriage equality vote started years before 2009. When exactly depends on who you talk to. There was the 1999 state Supreme Court case, Baker v. Vermont, that affirmed that same-sex couples should have equal rights to different sex couples. There were the gay and lesbian Vermonters that had faced prejudice in the state for decades before that. But most agree that the legislation establishing civil unions in the year 2000 was the first major step towards full equality under state law. I don't think there was ever a state, country, or community that had more thoroughly been absorbed in the examination of what I would call the, what is the place of gay and lesbian people in our society. Couples came from every state in the country. They came from other countries because there was such pent-up desire to have our relationships given some kind of legal recognition, and civil unions was the first true comprehensive legal recognition anywhere in this country and really probably anywhere in the world. Although it was the most protective law then in the country for same-sex couples and their families, it was also a compromise. This is Beth Robinson. She's now a Vermont Supreme Court justice. Back then, she was co-counsel in the Baker case. Then she chaired the Vermont Freedom to Marry organization. So we came out of the 2000 legislative session with this hard-earned compromise. Uh, Certainly many elected leaders took enormous political risks and some lost their seats as a result of supporting that. But it also fell short of the goal we were seeking. I mean, I had always thought that marriage equality was the way to go. Shap Smith was the Speaker of the House in 2009. I certainly believed that civil unions had been what you could get at that time. And I think that interim step was really important for us to be able to get to where we were. But it certainly was not what I think many of us hoped would be, which was full marriage equality. And anybody who said differently, I think, didn't recognize that uh, it was a sort of separate but equal situation. For one, the separation created a a sense of exclusion, um, a sense of stigma, a sense that the civil unions were something less. And for two, 
I'll, I'll never forget a, a friend of mine whose own father had declined to come to his civil union ceremony and then in the mid-aughts went to his brother's marriage to another man in Massachusetts. And I originally heard that story and I thought, oh, that's a, a real testament to the father's evolution over the course of those years. And what my friend said was actually, no, that's not what it was about. I asked my dad, and he said, well, what you had was a civil union, and I don't know what exactly that is, but I know it's not for me. But your brother got married, and I've been married to your mom for the better part of my life, and I'll be damned if I'll miss my son's marriage. The story really drove home the ways in which creating something new that didn't plug into a sort of common understanding and language really denied couples who wanted to be married something very important. For the next few years, advocates focused on preventing the civil union law from being repealed. People forget, but that the anti-civil union fervor in the House during the next four years was really difficult. It was, it was downright nasty. And then during that period between uh, we lost our majority. We lost the pro-civil union majority in the elections that fall in the House. I was at the time still the only openly gay member of the General Assembly, House or Senate. I asked to be seated still on the Judiciary Committee in the House, uh, even though it had a anti-civil union majority. The tension in that room was at times horrific. I think it was every Tuesday was testimony to repeal civil unions. And in the state house itself, quote, seminars were occasionally run in like room 11, room 10 downstairs about why homosexuality was immoral. And I mean, th this place was probably anti-gay. Somewhere around 2004, a whole bunch of things happened that shifted the conversation back to marriage. In 2003, when the Massachusetts Supreme Court issues its Goodrich decision. Massachusetts really leapfrogged over Vermont and became the focus of the national conversation. That was the same time period when you might remember that Mayor Newsom started issuing marriage licenses in City Hall in San Francisco. Uh, there were some other city officials around the country who were doing the same. And I would just say that the national conversation changed a lot. In 2008, California passed a proposition banning gay marriage. And that was largely in response to Gavin Newsom's decision to issue marriage certificates in San Francisco. And it was a body blow to the freedom to marry movement. I think that people really were sort of in a dark place and they were looking for some sunshine to come through to give hope to moving marriage forward again. So at that point, the folks in Vermont Freedom to Marry shifted from defending the civil union law to re-educating ourselves and, and our allies and supporters and, and Vermonters more generally about why the civil union law didn't represent full equality. I was back in the church basements and people's living rooms and everything else because we had a whole new package of messages and messaging, you know, that all took time. It took a long time to re-engage folks who were frankly burned out after the what I'll call the first chapter. It was a very difficult time for a lot of people. It was very painful. People were exhausted at the end. And it took some time to, to get people to re-engage, uh, educate them. 
There was a commission set up during that interim period between 2004 and 2009. Representative Little chaired it. It went around the state, held hearings about the implementation of civil unions, how, how was it going, was, what was the impact, what was the effect. I think in many ways testing the waters for a further legislative um, movement toward marriage equality. And I, I think that the way that the commission hearings unfolded suggested it was a very different time and, and that if folks in leadership were looking at the question of whether to re-engage on this issue from the lens of 2000, they, it was probably time to change their lenses. Vermont Freedom to Marry also worked to get a wave of pro-marriage equality Democrats elected in 2008. Their activism turned to legislative action during the 2009 session. It's important to note that many of my colleagues were very nervous, and I have to say I was as well to a degree, but many people have been defeated because they'd supported civil unions, Republicans and some Democrats. So the idea of continuing to work toward yet another climactic engagement of this issue was uh, frankly terrifying for numbers of our colleagues. My caucus always knew where I was on this issue. They always knew I supported it. And as our caucus tenet was, is you vote your conscience, you vote your constituents, and then you vote your party. Patty Comline was a representative from Dorset from 2005 to 2016. She was the House Minority Leader in 2009, and one of only six Republicans who supported marriage equality. It was so difficult. And you'd be in the cafeteria, and your party was just turned their back on the six of us. And so you, it, was, it was like middle school. You have your tray, and you couldn't sit with the Republicans. And you couldn't sit with the Democrats, because then the Republicans would get mad at you. You were the leader. I was the leader. You couldn't sit with the other five people who were on this issue, because, oh, look at them. They're all, like, banding together. And I took my tray, and I went in to sit in my committee room and eat lunch by myself. And I remember, you know, I remember thinking at the time, how many kids are ostracized in a, in a cafeteria because of their, you know, sexual orientation. And if I can sit in my committee room by myself for a few weeks to make it easier for people in the future, this is, this is an honor to be able to be, you know, alienated and ostracized. This is okay. You know, the argument was what you hear now, that marriage is a traditional institution that's between a man and a woman, and that is sort of the biblical basis for it and the cultural basis for it, and it should not be changed. I think the traditional case for one man, one woman marriage was really being undermined by what people saw in other states and with civil unions in that, hey, we want more people to be families, not fewer. There was a lot of outreach. Um, you know, one very big man from Danby come at me really angrily. I'm like, how has this changed your life? And he said, it's just give me one more thing to be pissed off about. I'm like, well, you look like someone who likes to be pissed off, so I guess you're doing okay. In the end, you could talk about policies and you could talk about constitutional rights and facts and figures, but um, this was an intensely personal issue, and I think it was intensely personal for people across the spectrum on this issue. And I think to really get to the nut of it, it was important for folks to talk about their actual life experiences and how it affected them. Because I think there's a lot of folks who may not be comfortable or weren't at the time comfortable with it, but they, they didn't want to be part of causing harm to their fellow Vermonters and their families. There's a big public hearing on it. And there were young people talking about their moms, their dads, and what great parents they are. And 
And on the other side, they held a Bible up, and I, that was their reasoning. And, and a lot of the Republicans of the caucus came to me after and said, clearly your side prevailed in the hearing, but didn't change their vote. The marriage equality bill went up for a House vote on Friday, April 3rd. I think we felt fairly confident, and we had every reason to believe at that point that we, we had a strong majority for marriage equality. What I think was the unexpected for some statement by Governor Douglas before the vote that he would veto the bill if it got passed. Well, we knew that he was going to veto it uh, before we passed it in the House. He had made that clear. So throughout the time of the vote count for the vote in the House uh, to pass the bill, we were trying to get the numbers as high as possible. One, to give uh, confidence to the advocates that we thought we could get the measure all the way through, um, and also to give confidence to other legislators that um, this was an issue that was going to have broad-based support. I had an incredible leadership team at that time. You know, uh, Bill Lippert was the chair of the committee, and Maxine Grad was the vice chair, but then I had uh, Floyd Neese, who was the majority leader, and Lucy LaRiche, who was working as the whip, and uh, they were just doing a great job um, marshalling the votes for the initial vote, and also sort of talking to people about what would happen if it was overridden. I think Beth, she felt fairly confident that Governor Douglas would not veto marriage equality if it passed with a significant number in the House and the Senate. There was certainly egg on my face because I had predicted with great confidence that that wasn't how things would unfold. So I, I was wrong, as history has shown. Thankfully, it all worked out in the end. I wasn't personally surprised, but I was deeply disappointed because I also knew that that set up a hurdle that was going to be much more difficult to overcome. I, as I said, I think we all felt quite confident we had the strong enough pro-marriage equality support in the House to pass it with a strong vote, which we did. But the idea that we had to now overcome a veto after all the years of putting in the groundwork to get a strong vote in the House and the Senate was really dismaying. There were 95 members in favor, enough to pass the bill, but not enough to override the veto they knew was coming. We had a meeting, remember, an off-site with our caucus that lasted three and a half hours where they vented. It's a Friday night. It was sleeting. It was awful after being with angry people who you work with. And I called my parents. I was feeling really vulnerable. I'm like, I said to my mother, I just want to thank you. You know, you guys are older, but where you are on this issue, I really appreciate that. And, she, and this was right after the veto. And my mother said, well, I think you want to talk to your father. He's got stronger opinions than I. I'm like, so dad really supports this? He's like, oh, no, no. <laughs> my father got on the phone and he started ranting about how he should be supporting the governor's veto. And a lot of people felt like you should be supporting the party and it was turning your back on the party. And there are things that are far more important than that. The timetable was greatly compressed. I mean, it was all within several days. But there was an intervening weekend. And going into the intervening weekend, it looked like there were three votes shy of enough votes to override a veto. So there wasn't a lot of time to think, right? I mean, you can just imagine, I mean, the, um, the organization, the, the Freedom to Marriage Task Force, got boatloads of, of track phones and was sending volunteers door to door, knocking on houses in the districts of the legislators who were sort of in these swing districts. And 
they'd talk to people, and if people, you know, were supportive, they'd dial the legislator's number and hand them the phone and say, tell your, tell your legislator. I mean, that was that kind of intensive outreach. On Monday, the Senate passed the bill. And then, as he had warned, Governor Jim Douglas immediately vetoed it. Then Schaap thought we were going to lose people. I remember seeing Schaap out in the parking lot, and he said, once the governor vetoed it, and Schaap said, you know, I'm going to lose you. I'm like, no, you're not losing him. The six of us are holding together. And honestly, the governor said to me, I want you to continue voting your conscience, and if anybody tries to sway you or give you a hard time, you send them to come talk to me. And I did. Uh, we had people in the caucus that were very angry and expected us to support the governor, and I said, you know, go have a conversation with him. So we held. Yeah, I mean, it was an anxious time. I mean, when I when I went home Monday night, I didn't think we had the votes. And it, I, I will confess that it was, for me, the lowest moment in the entire 15-year saga. I was, I was devastated. The night before the vote, there were a lot of late evening conversations uh, happening because we had to persuade colleagues who had voted against marriage equality to vote for an override of the governor's veto. That meant they had to shift their position either based on their view that the strong majority of their colleagues had voted for this and they were willing to step forward and risk having voted against the marriage equality bill but then stepping forward to vote for an override of the governor's veto. There was enormous pressure. The pitch to them was, look, we understand that you may be against the legislation, but when it passes overwhelmingly in the House, it is something that should pass, and it shouldn't be thwarted by the governor's veto. So our pitch to people was, stick with the majority of the House who said that this should go forward, and that's 95 people instead of the one signature of the governor. And for a number of those who switched their votes, that worked. Tuesday morning, the Senate voted to override the governor's veto. The final decision came down to the House. I don't think any of us were certain until the veto was overridden that we had 100 votes to legalize marriage equality in the House. We came into the chamber that day not knowing for certain that we had all the votes we needed. There were several particular members who were really wavering. There were members who, several members who, in one setting they would say they were going to vote for the override, and to others they would say that they were not. I remember when I knew that we had the votes because uh, Floyd visited a particular member in Burlington who was at the airport and was uh, trying to convince him to switch his vote. And I got a call from Floyd probably around 10 o'clock that night, and this was the night before the override, saying, I think we've got this vote. You need to talk to this guy tomorrow. Uh, the next day, the member came into my office, said that he was going to change his vote and he was going to vote to override, and we knew that we had it. I knew it was going to be one vote. It would have been nice for people to have a second vote, right? There's a wiggle room and there's a second vote. But because we were all that one vote, like, for some people it was an honor, for some it was a burden, and for some it was both, right? You had to carry that you were that one vote. If it wasn't for you, this wouldn't have passed. You were the vote that passed marriage equality. Every single one of us carries that. That morning, as we came into the state house, it also depended on everyone being here. We needed to have two-thirds, and there was at least one member who came to the chamber 
who was very sick, had not been in the house for weeks, who came, stayed in what we call the infirmary, but it's, it's really just a little room downstairs, but he was not well. He stayed off the floor and came onto the floor for, only for the vote. Someone else had traveled out of country and flew back. You know, Floyd was the majority leader, was responsible for helping out on the floor, but he got a call that morning. His mom was being taken to the hospital, and they weren't sure whether she was going to live. And he was like, what should I do? She lived down in New Hampshire. And I said, you know, you got to go. And, and he decided that he had to stay, and we needed his vote. And he got a call about an hour later, and his mom had passed away, and it was still before the vote. And him being able to hold it together under those circumstances and uh, help pull us through was just a testament to uh, how great a leader he was. It was, it was a lot of drama. It was a very, very difficult morning. Yeah, it was like a shaking vote. Like when you went to vote and you cast your vote, you're, like everybody, there was a, you know, you had to check your voice. The actual vote was extremely stressful because even though on the one hand, you know, with, with something like this, in theory, you know where everybody is before you put it to a vote, right? I mean, that, that's how most legislation like this, that would be the case. There were a few places where we, we didn't have full confidence until we actually heard the words come out of the mouth. Some people, it's like, are they in the building? Who had the last conversation with them to try to really make sure that they were prepared? There were members who were really struggling because the spotlight was on them, the pressure, it was nerve-wracking. Because I knew where the I knew in the where in the roll call there were some names that had to become a yes if we were going to win, and uh, some of them were late in the roll call. <laughs> I'll just say that. And I'm not going to name names, so don't ask me. But I'll say that there was a disproportionate amount of anxiety about folks whose names were toward the end of the latter part of the alphabet. It sort of created a particular suspense. When did you know that the vote was going to come out in your favor? when David Zuckerman cast the last vote. So that roll call was incredibly tense, and the final vote was 100 to 49. It was just an incredible feeling, but it was, it was also a tremendous amount of pressure, and I just remember I walked from the podium back to my office and wept because I knew how important the moment was, but just how stressful it had all been. And it was incredible, but it was an incredible amount of pressure because I think all of us felt if we failed, we were going to fail history. I choke up remembering it. And I think uh, I remember, you know, brought, brought tears. And I, I just remember seeing and then subsequently seeing in the video of uh, Beth Robinson and Susan Murray sitting here in the Senate seats and just bursting into tears after years, decades more than a decade of laying the groundwork, fighting, strategizing. The personal toll that it took to stand in the face of what was prejudice and at times overt negative hatred. There were things said in this chamber which, you know, just were hard to hear. There was a picture of me sobbing in the front page of the New York Times the next day. I mean, I didn't, I didn't plan that kind of emotional reaction, but I, I, it, it sort of bubbled out because um, 
just a sense of relief, a tremendous sense of relief and gratitude, gratitude for so much hard work encouraged by so many people and gratitude for the, I think, relative civility with which Vermonters had the debate the second time around. And I appreciated folks, again, not just the folks who were working for the Freedom to Marry, but folks who were standing up respectfully, but sincerely speaking their mind on the other side. We also had to leave the chamber immediately. There was, you know, it was a big celebration, but the six of us had to get out of the room and we went into the, it was planned to get into the Senate cloakroom, you know, that small room off the Senate to get away from the press because that's where the attention was. And we knew this was going to be really bad for Republicans. I remember going out to dinner that night. My wife came down to Montpelier and brought our two kids who were pretty young at that time and coming into Positive Pie and just everybody there standing up and clapping. And that was a pretty amazing thing for me to have my kids see. Everybody that retires from here says that was their most meaningful vote. And that's why, because you really had impact on people that, that deserved it. Vermont's marriage equality vote is widely seen as leading to national action on the issue. You know, until the vote in Vermont in 2009, all of the action in the national conversation, including in Vermont, had happened in courts. Vermont was the first state that passed a law recognizing marriages between same-sex partners and doing so not because a court said it had to. That was a, a big shift. Now, you know, New Hampshire was just a month later, and, and they were well down the track. It's not as though Vermont invented the concept, but there's no question when I talk to my counterparts in other states that having someone go first made it helpful for others. I think that we had a huge impact on it nationally. Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine all moved to pass marriage equality and passed marriage equality in 2009. And I think that given that push, right after California had voted for Prop 8, it gave the movement new energy to push forward. It was years later that my son was in college. He went to school in Tennessee, a very different political makeup than here. And a teacher was being really inappropriate talking about gay people. And he knew that there was a uh, young man in his class and he got up and he left the class and he filed a complaint with, about the teacher, what he had said, and he told this student. And he said, it wasn't until that moment that I recognized what it was that you did. I see it in my own community where, you know, I grew up in Morseville. I think a lot of people who were gay and lesbian were closeted when I grew up. Now they feel comfortable not being closeted and they feel comfortable having their own families. And, and that is from my perspective, a huge boon to society in general and to the community. There's the actual substantive change in the law, which was which is incredibly important, and it's what drove the, the effort. But seeing the power of ordinary people coming together, seeing the responsiveness of our elected leaders in Vermont, it, 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 um, and seeing how conscientiously and sincerely elected representatives, and, and I include everyone from the governor through the state house on that, how folks handle this challenging conversation makes me feel really good about our state.
That was Bill Lippert, Beth Robinson, Shap Smith, and Patty Comline. Head to vtdigger.org to find a full transcript of this episode, along with photos from the 2009 debate shared by our friends at the Times Argus. The Deeper Dig is our weekly podcast. We publish new episodes every Friday at vtdigger.org, and you can subscribe in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they land. We used music this week from Blue Dot Sessions and Lee Rosefear. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.